Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. And this week on The Stacks, we're doing something a little different. In light of the recent wave of book bannings all across America, I felt it was really important to spotlight what's going on. I have been really upset over everything I'm reading and hearing about, and so I wanted to take the time to address it on the podcast. Every single day this week, Monday through Friday, I'm talking to different people impacted by book bannings. My guests will range from educators and students to booksellers, politicians, and authors. Things have been moving really quickly in the book banning arena. And in an effort to be timely with our coverage of book bannings, we put together this whole mini series in about a week. These five days of coverage is not comprehensive, but instead a way to highlight more voices and to remind us all what is at stake. Throughout the week, you'll also hear from some of my favorite authors and thinkers about their favorite banned books. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. I also want to say, if you like what you hear, if you appreciate the work that I'm doing to create the Stacks every single week, please join the Stacks Pack on Patreon. The Stacks is a completely independent podcast, so without the support of listeners like you, there really is no show. You will get perks like our virtual book club and bonus episodes, and also you'll get to rest easy knowing your contribution makes the Stacks possible. So to join us, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. All right, now let's get to today's episode all about the banning of books. All right, everybody, today we're starting with Katrina Stokes. She is the director of the Warren County Vicksburg Public Library. She's going to give us sort of a perspective from a librarian, educator point of view. Katrina, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the Stacks. Oh, thank you for having me. This is such a treat. So I read up on you a little bit, but I'd love for you kind of to tell people a little bit of your background, how you got to librarianing. I don't think, I don't know if it's a verb, but I made it one. Works for me. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. Um, I've been a reader all my life. I mean, usually I was a kid over in the corner with her, with her nose in a book. I <laughs> tore through so many genres as a kid. I, I did nonfiction and Nancy Drew and got into Dune in high school. And I'm just so on, so forth. I'm all over the place. Love reading. Love it so much. My parents were born and raised in Mississippi. My father uh, became uh, an officer in the army. So I pretty much spent the first 20 years of my life bouncing around from one place to another. So as I got older, my, the first two questions out of my mouth were, okay, where's the library and can I ride my bike there? Uh, more, <laughs> you know, usually both public librarians and school librarians knew me by name within about the first month. Mm. Uh, and I used a summertime, big stack of books, like about this big, <laughs> especially when uh, we take road trips to go visit family because you know, we live several hours away. So I always had a big stack of books on the, on the seat beside me, ready to you know, keep me occupied while we were traveling. It did not occur to me to be a librarian until uh, I was about 30 years old, mm. and I just kind of wasn't entirely sure where. I had these grand ideas where I wanted my life to go, but none of them kind of really worked out mm. And until one day I was on a break at my job, and I see this article about fields in which qualified personnel were predicted to become scarce, and number two on the list was librarians. Wow. And it was just like a thunderbolt 
why did I never think about being a librarian? So I started looking up more information about, okay, I know librarians do more than just put books on shelves. What else do they do? The more I read about it, the more I said, this is me. So I looked into uh, programs. How could I get my How could I get my degree? I found one through the uh, University of Southern Mississippi. Did the whole thing completely online in two years, wow. and uh, then I spent a few years trying to trying to find a job. And bear in mind, at this point, I had never actually worked in a library. <laughs> I, I tried to volunteer. Uh, much of my time was spent in customer facing, customer service oriented type positions. So uh, on a lark, I said, okay, I'm going to apply for this position. It's assistant li- uh, assistant director. I thought I don't have a chance to get in this job at all. Hmm. None whatsoever. Went to the interview and I, I just, I killed it. I mean, best <laughs> interview I'd ever given. I said, oh yes, this is great. I love yes. best one I've done yet. I just, I was just, you know, I was on such a high. I still don't think I have a snowball's chance of getting this job. Rode that high all the way home. And then the next day I got the call. We want you to have the job. Wow. I nearly passed out. Wow. That's so <laughs> so great. that that was the first shock. Second shock came when I started the job and the director says, by the way, I'm retiring next year. We want you to be director. Oh I was in total gosh. shock. Um, I said, oh, okay. So it, it was a good two, three years before my head fully stopped spinning. Uh, and, and I was, you know, I've settled in the job ever since. So I've been director for almost uh, six years now. Wow. Uh, will be six years this summer. And it's just... I absolutely love it. It's just the joy of reading and inspiring the joy of reading, encouraging the joy of reading, helping people find the information that they really need or they want. It's a chance just to really learn something new, uh, that this job is uh, ever-changing with new technology, everything that come, everything that, that is coming out that's new, uh, anything that has to do with learning and reading. Uh, we have to stay on top of it and watch mm. for what's what's coming in. And of course, you know, anticipate what, uh, what our community needs and do our best to try to make that accessible to them. Okay. I have a follow-up question for people who okay. don't know what else librarians do besides putting books on shelves. Can you tell them? Because I was, I don't know, two, two years, <laughs> two years ago when I found out that librarians did lots of other things. Wow. Uh, another word for a librarian is information specialist. Mm. Uh, it is absolutely our job to, uh, critique information resources. I'm a big proponent of, uh, I know the the buzzwords in library library world are critical thinking and information literacy. And it is the skill set that you need in order to look at a piece of information and be able to determine, is this a credible source? Right, right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I I think, I think that we forget that librarians are, are more than book organizers and that there, you know, there's a degree that goes into it and there's like so much knowledge and also a lot of people management too. Like you're dealing with all sorts of people, young people, old people, everything in between parents, children. Like it's just, it's a, it's like social work in some regards too, because you're trying to navigate, you know, and maybe not social work, but very much like a Oh no, you're Community not, you're not organizing. wrong actually. Yeah. 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 Believe it or not, uh, libraries have actually started hiring social workers because uh-huh. uh, we're, we're seeing so many people. I mean, we have so many, uh, this is true as it was put once, it is probably one of the last truly democratic institutions mm-hmm. in our nation. We don't care who you are. We don't care how much money you have. We don't care what your social standing is. We don't care how big or small your house is or if you don't have a house. Right. You come in this library, you have the right to the same access as anyone else. Yeah. I have seen instances where uh, someone who was living on the streets uh, was able to use our computer and able to apply for benefits and were then able to find themselves a place to live and eventually get a job. Yeah. Uh, there, are, there are many libraries who have uh, stories like those and it's amazing to see. Ugh, librarians, the real heroes. <laughs> I live in Los Angeles. And so our public library system has a lot. They do a lot for people who are currently unhoused. Okay. We're not talking about that today though, though I could, <laughs> though I could spend this whole time talking with you about this. It's too we're, easy to go off on tangents with this job. <laughs> I know. I mean, I feel like that's the thing. Like I, I've never gotten a chance to really pick a librarian's brain. So I feel like I'm like trying to hold back because I have so many questions, <laughs> but I'll do what I can. Okay. We're talking about book banning. I would love for, I'm just a little curious if you know sort of the history of book banning in the sense that were libraries always 
on the side of books or was there a history of libraries sort of saying, we don't want to carry, we don't want to carry this book in the library? Oh boy. Yes. Well, I'm going to say, first of all, librarians are human too. Yeah. Yeah. And and we carry our own biases and prejudices, even with uh, information. But an interesting fact, um, as I learned in library school, uh, in the beginning, um, libraries were considered a repository of knowledge and knowledge only. And Mm. novels, oh no, (laughs) novels were not quality educational material. No, we do not want novels in our libraries. And at some point, and I can't remember exactly when, it might have been the 19th century, uh, a librarian argued in favor of adding novels to library collections simply because he said, okay, well, they'll come for the novels. They'll stay for the more educational material. Wow. So eventually uh, novels were added. And what I find particularly uh, interesting in, in a really funny sense is the number of things, uh, items that eventually became library materials, became available in libraries, were first met with skepticism, if not outright pushback. Uh, There was the uh, addition of this is going to date me here, VHS, videotapes. Uh, I remember the first time I walked in a library, I said, whoa, they've got movies. Wow, I can't believe they got movies. And the best part was many of them could be checked out for free. I don't have to pay a rental fee. And and then, of course, DVDs got added to the collection. And and there there was at first a little bit of pushback. Well, libraries are placed for books. Why are you adding this? Well, not everybody can afford to rent movies, so the library is going to start providing them to their patrons. More recent one was uh, graphic novels and comic books and manga, which people said, that's not literature. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's okay. They're picture books for adults. Who cares? Read them anyway. In fact, uh, the photo I sent you, um, I I decided to take in front of our graphic novel section, which is a point of pride for me. That that. is the first new collection that I started when I came here. I wrote a grant to get it started, and we've been building on it ever since. So you just mentioned that, that you sort of started the spearhead of this graphic novel section of your library. How do librarians shape what's in a library? Because you mentioned, you know, librarians are human. And I think a lot of what we're seeing, like with these book bans, though it's coming from politicians, you know, I live in Los Angeles, as I mentioned, like, I think that there's different expectations and understandings about what is and isn't allowed in a Mm -hmm. huge city library on, on in a deeply blue area of a deeply blue state, you know, versus you're in Mississippi, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm sure all over the place, different political leanings, even if it's not a book ban, shapes what mm-hmm. is in or out of a library. How much does a librarian play into that? They could very easily uh, play a lot into it. But the bottom line is the way I see it, we have a responsibility to our communities. We provide what our community wants based on the specific characteristics, the diversity, and we should always remember whom we serve and shape the collection to reflect who is in our community. Uh, demographic. We, we're we're big for keeping statistics and and looking at statistics. Uh, the U.S. Census Bureau, for example, that just uh, the new census that just came out, um, is a pretty large instrument and in part and part of what helps us determine. Okay, so these are the the specific demographics with regards to ethnicity and race and nationality within our community. Who is living here? Uh, for example, we uh, we actually have a very large Army Corps of Engineers compound here. So there are potentially people not just from around the nation, but even from around the world. So the potential to reach them is is fairly great. And, you know, we want our collection to be something that would help draw them in Mm. and make them understand, well, you're part of our community now. So this library is here for you. And of course, you know, it's just it's not possible to get every single book that every person in our community would want, Uh, which is why we have things like interlibrary loan. If we don't have it, we're going to try to find a way to get it for you. But yes, it, it, it's very difficult to, well, it's, it's sometimes difficult or rather it's very easy just to fall into a pattern. Right. And when a book is threatened to, or challenged, I believe that's the word challenged. Yes. I know I actually don't know the difference between like books being challenged in schools versus books being challenged in libraries more broadly, because I know mm-hmm. that it's, you know, uh, it's coming from like 
I obviously like the school board or the mm-hmm. government or whatever, depending on the situation. But is there overlap? Like if a book is challenged in school, is that something that you then worry about for your general public library? Or are those things totally separate? Uh, it does concern me when I hear it. Now, the one thing, and this is essentially a conversation I've had with patrons who have called up here and objected to certain items. They're, they are shocked when I tell them, we do not have the right to beha- to act in a parent's stead like a school does mm. because we are a public library. We serve everybody, not just children. Schools have what they call it in loco parentis. They can act as in the parent's place while the children are in their charge. But when they come to a public library, well, the expectation here is if your child's under the age of 12, the parent needs to be with them. Mm-hmm. And we've even gone as far as to place signs, especially because the the concern was raised when I started the graphic novel collection. Okay, well, some of these are kind of explicit for children. Well, the catch there is we don't have the right to prevent them from checking out any books. That is up to the parent. The parent is the one responsible for uh, following up on what their children are accessing at the libraries, which is why we had to put a sign out near the adult graphic novel section saying, parents, you're responsible for what your child accesses and what they check out. Please monitor them before you take them home. Yeah. But even so, children have a right to pretty much the same, uh, well, they, they have the right, they have the same right we do to access whatever information they, they really want or, or think they need. But that is, um, the caveat there again is that's dependent upon the parent's. It is the parent's right to decide, I really don't feel my child is ready for this. Right. Okay. That's perfectly fine. You don't get that right to make that choice for my child. That's where I have a problem. Right. And um, I've actually, uh, I kind of went head to head with a politician in another state over that on Twitter. <laughs> Just my thought was, okay, if you're going to make me responsible for helping you raise your child, then I insist you pay me some sort of child support. Right. right. <laughs> you know, I... I I don't think that's right and that's not fair. Even even in a school, okay, so you don't want to make it part of the curriculum, but don't remove it from the library. Right. I mean, it, I, I know there's a there's a certain standard. Uh, they, they look for books that match their uh, their mission, which of course is a child's education. But in the end, I just don't feel that any right any parent has a right to say, "Well, my child can't see this, and therefore, I don't think your child should either." Right. And and that goes double, if not triply, so here in the public library, we absolutely do not have the right to stop a child from checking out a book. That is entirely up to the parent. So people can't challenge books in public libraries. Well, they definitely can. Oh, and can books be banned from public libraries? Uh, that is a possibility, yes. And what's that process? We call it a reconsideration process. Okay. And I have been through three instances uh, as director in which someone raised an objection. Now, I'm going to say up front, it is absolutely anyone's right to raise an objection to something. That is your First Amendment right. And, and you, you have a right to your own opinion. You can say, I don't like this book. I object to it based on moral or ethical principles. Okay, fine. But again, you don't have the right to say, well, I don't think anybody else should read it. Right, of course. We are also, uh, we operate under the uh, American Library Association's Library Bill of Rights, which essentially states that every person has the right to freely access what information they want or desire. And you can find that at ALA.org. It, it is the tenants that every librarian really should be operating by, even school librarians. And of course, we also have the library uh, a code of ethics that librarians follow too, which is we do our best to set aside our personal feelings and prejudices uh, in order to create as wi- a widely diverse library that matches, again, what our community needs. Now, there again, a community can always stand up and say, you know, we as a whole object to this. We don't want this in our library. If the whole community stands up and says, no, we don't want it, okay, the people have spoken. But when one person stands up and says, I don't want this in the library and I don't think anyone else should have access to it, well, that that there is a problem. Right. And more often than not, from what I learned in library school, most people who raise this objection, they simply want to be heard. Mm -hmm. Okay, noted. You don't like it. That's fine. You don't have to check it out. When they start pushing the issue, that's when I say, okay, 
If you feel this strongly about it, I have some paperwork I would like to send you. We have the material reconsideration form. I send them a copy of our selection policy, which clearly spells out what we will and will not accept or what we will or will not choose. Plus, uh, I I send them a copy of the uh, Library Bill of Rights. And so far, I have never had anybody take it further. Mm. The idea is they read over the material, the, the material I send them, they fill out the form, they send it back to me. I take it to my board of trustees, and those are the people I answer to. They are my bosses. I have five, if you will. Okay. Uh, and that's because we have five districts in our county. They look at it. They consider it. They'll probably even go and check out the material themselves to decide. And then more often than not, they'll decide whether or not, yes, we'll keep it. No, we won't. They will ask the uh, person uh, raising the objection if they wish to speak to the board. And if necessary, they will flat out say, hey, this person is right. There is an objection raised to this book. You know, please come to the meeting. If you, you know, tell us, do you, do you agree with the objection or do you want the item to stay? And more often than not, where, where, where our library is concerned, very rarely. I, in fact, I don't think there has been an instance of an item being permanently removed okay. from our collection. It might have been moved from one section to another. Interesting which is a form of censorship in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But again, if we're talking about a book, we can't necessarily pull the child away and say, no, you can't check that out. Right. What were the, in the three instances where you had reconsiderations, do you remember the three books? Let's see. The first time was uh, a book by Maurice Sendak, who wrote Where the Wild Things Are. Yes. In the Midnight Kitchen? No, it's called Outside Over There. Okay in which a little girl is watching over her baby's sibling and the baby is kidnapped by trolls. Oh, okay. Yes. And I was like, okay, I never heard of this one. I received this letter and the letter stated, um, my daughter-in-law checked out this book and brought it to me. I don't think this is a very pretty fairy tale. The baby in the story represents uh, or looks very similar to the Lindbergh baby. And whoever can remember that, that, Wow. <laughs> situation. Uh, well, well, that will be a direct reminder of that. I sat there and thought, um, wow. Okay. Just out of curiosity, I went to a couple of my staff members and I said, do you know about the Lindbergh baby case? No, who's that? <laughs> I thought, okay, that's what I thought. Um, so for the, for the listeners out there, just a quick recap. Lindbergh baby refers to Charles Lindbergh's child. Uh, Charles Lindbergh being the man who flew around the world. His child was kidnapped and fortunately did not survive the attempt. And looking at it, yeah, the, the baby does kind of represent it. But I thought, I don't know of a single child that will look at that and think, oh, hey, that looks like the Lindbergh baby. Right. But okay, that's beside the point. Um, she just went on to say that she thought it was very scary. It was totally inappropriate for children. And she knew of a library that had pulled this book and so on and so forth. Okay, I managed to contact this lady and I found out that, well, first of all, she had borrowed her her son's address. Her son lived in my county, but she did not. Oh, wow. And I said, okay, um, I don't think my trustees are going to be too happy about this coming from somebody who doesn't even live here. Upon further investigation, I found out she was a trustee of another library. Oh, man. And I thought. I, I can't believe this. Uh, I thought, okay, I'm pretty sure I know what their response is going to be when they find out you're a trustee at another library trying to interfere with our collection. Right. But I, I, I sent the paperwork and I never heard back. People don't like paperwork very much. No. So I, I find that's really a good deterrent. I can relate. For that. It's something yeah. that brings us all together. No kidding. Um, so for people who are in communities where books are being challenged at the schools or, or wherever, I guess at the schools mostly, and or for people who are just concerned citizens mm-hmm. of other places, what should we be doing? What can we do? I know people are like sending copies of these books to the libraries, but I'm also <laughs> sort of sensing that that's like not the most effective thing to do. Well, like, I guess that depends on how you look at it. Um I follow a lot of people on, on Facebook, people who've been very outspoken about this. And I know one person said, well, libraries can't really take donated copies. And oh, that's not true. Yes, we can. If it, if it fits mm-hmm. uh, our, our, if it meets our selection criteria, absolutely. Because that's actually one less book we have to buy and more money we can put towards other books we want to be able to get. Uh, so, and I actually went on a uh, Facebook page. I was excited because our copy of mouse got checked out. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, okay, so ours is gone. Who, who else, uh, who else has theirs checked out? And do you have a waiting list? And, oh, wow. Some people have a waiting list about, uh, four dozen people long. I said, that that's, that's insane. That's fantastic. But as far as what everyone else is doing, I think what disturbs me the most about, uh, the school board's decision is it was done so without any input at all from the parents. Because if I had been a parent in that community, I'd have stood up and said, absolutely not. I've read it myself, and we absolutely need our children to understand what an absolutely horrible, horrible period of our history this was, because I don't want this to repeat. And it, it's, it's a very touchy subject for me personally, uh, because, uh, well, for, firstly, my paternal grandfather uh, fought in World War II in Europe. Uh, he fought with the 42nd Infantry Division, and they were one of the divisions that marched into Dachau. Wow. And uh, from what I understand to his dying day, he never spoke about what he saw there. Wow. But it was pretty obvious it disturbed him. Mm-hmm. More importantly, my uh, my paternal grandmother uh, grew up in Vienna, Austria. Uh, my grandparents met because my grandfather was over there fighting. And we found out that this was apparently a a secret that had been kept in the family. We were told her mother had passed away when she was a child and come to find out that was not true. She was suffering from a terrible mental illness and had to be institutionalized. And when the Nazis took power in Austria, she disappeared. So I think it's very, very likely my great grandmother was a victim of the uh, eugenics program. Mm So for people to want to deny the atrocities that happened and try to sugarcoat it, it to me is just absolutely abhorrent. Yeah. Back to your question, how I've gone off another tangent again. Okay. Um, parents make your voices heard. Yeah. I mean, if, if a school board is talking about removing a, a material or an item from the curriculum, from the school library, stand, you know, go, go get a copy and, and read it for yourself always read it for yourself and find out and then make the decision. So, well, I don't necessarily like it used in this way, but I don't want it removed completely from, from their view or at the very least say, well, maybe not this grade, maybe the next grade. Maybe I, I I don't necessarily like um, children quite this age dealing with this just yet. Maybe move it ahead a year. And again, that's entirely the parent's choice. You know, speaking as a parent myself, I I have a teenager and he's been asking me a lot of tough questions lately, but uh, you can't sugarcoat it. Yeah. And I I have to say that um, one thing that sticks out in my mind is I think about uh, some of the memes that have been going around, uh, particularly the one of Ruby Bridges as a little girl saying that if she could survive having rocks thrown at her, then your child can survive hearing about it. Yeah. Yeah. And. That's, that's pretty telling. So my child asked me, I tell them, I said, yeah, this happened. And I, I absolutely cannot stand the look of horror on their faces. It breaks my heart. Yeah. But they deserve to know the truth. Yeah. Um, so we're, we should wrap up. I, I hate to let you go because I have so many other questions for you. But I want to know, besides the American Library Association, which you mentioned before, are there any other mm-hmm. organizations that you know of that people can connect with that they want to help that are organizing around the book bannings and those types of things? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's also the American Association of School Librarians. Okay. Uh, also, check around uh, your state. Quite often, there is a, uh, a state-level library association. In Mississippi, we have the Mississippi Library Association. Uh, I'm pretty sure just pretty much every state is going to have one. Uh, we also have a state library. Ours is called the Mississippi Library Commission, and, and they they exist to uh, provide support to all the library, all the public libraries across the state. Uh, quite often, uh, they're the first ones I call. Uh, and and give a heads up if I have any sort of objection or challenge to an item. We keep our own uh, list of challenged materials. And I know there's also one on the ALA website under the uh, Office of Intellectual Freedom or the Freedom to Read Foundation. Um, They have a list of banned books. And I always encourage people, I said, okay, if you're curious, go check out that that list and go check out some of those books. Because I guarantee they're, yeah, they're banned for a reason. And, or they're, well, they're being challenged for a reason. 
find out what that reason is. Um, right, right. Okay. You're my first guest for library band book, band book week. I don't know. I don't have a better name for it. I didn't waste my time on that. But what is your personal favorite book that you know of that's on the band banning books lists? What's the one that's like your, your favorite band book? Oh, wow. That's really hard. Probably the, the first one that comes to mind, I guess, is uh, uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Mm. It's such yeah. a complex and, and and just really multi just there, there were so many facets to that novel you know and I read it read it as a young person and had to go back and read it again as an adult because my I knew my perceptions had changed and I said oh wow I didn't notice that before that's that's really fascinating um, it, it's it's such a compelling novel and and honestly kind of scary because he's, there seem to be a lot of issues that feels like it's pushing us in that direction yeah. Well, Katrina, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the work that you do. Just so appreciated. All right. That was my conversation with Katrina Stokes, director of the Warren County Vicksburg Public Library. After this break, we will hear from Thursday Williams, performer on Broadway and what the Constitution means to me and current college student. And we're going to talk about what young people are thinking and feeling about what's going on with the current wave of book bannings. Hi, my name is Hanif Abdurraqib, and I love a great many banned books, but the one on my mind today is The Bridge to Terabithia, which was banned in the mid-90s when I was coming up, and I remember this because there was a lot of furor and rage over the amount of profanity in it, and what I think people seemed to think was a disrespect for adults. Uh, And so that book was a real touchy topic when I was a kid. And I loved it. I read it in my home and it took me to another newer world. And so that is the favorite band book that I am thinking about today. Hi, this is Tessa Miller. I'm the author of What Doesn't Kill You, A Life with Chronic Illness, Lessons from a Body in Revolt. My favorite band book is one that I read in elementary school, and that is Lois Lowry's The Giver. I was recently visiting my mom going through uh, some storage tubs of old photographs and art projects, and I found several magazines that I'd made out of construction paper, and they were all dedicated to the story of the giver and the world that Lois Lowry created within that book. And I think that was uh, my first foray into journalism, which is what I still do today. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California 
and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. All right, everybody, I'm very excited. I am joined now by Thursday Williams. Thursday is currently a college student, but you might know Thursday from her performance in What the Constitution Means to Me on Broadway. Um, if you have not seen it, you can watch it. It's streaming. Where is it streaming? Is it Amazon or Netflix? Yeah. Amazon. Amazon Amazon yeah. Prime. You guys can catch it on Amazon Prime. It's very cool. Um, Thursday, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. I People who listen to the show know that I was a theater major, so I have you know love for Broadway. But I'm also really excited to talk to you because you are a smart human who I'm hoping can lend us some insights into the craziness around the banning of books. So we're sort of just going to dive right in. A lot of what I'm hearing from people about banning of books and everything is like it's censorship and um, it's not constitutional and blah, blah, blah. And since you know a lot about the Constitution, I sort of want to get your takes on it. And also because you're a young person and young people are so much smarter and cooler than us old. So I also just want your just to like suck up your vibes as a young. Um, <laughs> so here's my first question. Is it constitutional for government institutions like the school boards and stuff to ban books? Is that not against the First Amendment? Am I missing something? Do you know? I think, okay, given what I have learned, okay. <laughs> um, I, I know that um, exceptions are made to the First Amendment, but I think it, it's like draft cards, you know, like, um, yeah. I can't remember which case it was, but it was like inciting violence or, um, you know, like, of course, you can't, with freedom of speech, you can't walk into a crowded theater and scream, you know, fire. Okay, or right. I think that's where this they have drawn the line. So in terms of books, I, I definitely think that it is a violation of the First Amendment right to free speech in the Constitution. As long as the books aren't, like I said, you know, like inciting violence. Um, right. I know there was a case with draft card where this one person was handing out um, cards to saying, like, don't fight in the war. I know that was was deemed like at that point, you know, it was OK for his first their First Amendment right um, to be violated because, you know, it was a threat to security. Um, so I feel like in terms of that, books can be banned. But, you know, other than that, I don't think it should be. Right. I mean, and we're talking about like books about gay children or books about you know, slavery. We're not talking about, you know, Mein Kampf, which is also sort of funny. It's like you guys aren't banning Mein Kampf, but you're banning Mao's. Like, okay, make it make and, sense. And and as a young person who, because I, I was in, um, pub, I went to public school mm -hmm. in New York City. It wasn't until college that I really started learning about my real history. Mm. And it's, these books are extreme. First of all, they're extremely, extremely important. Like they're necessary, mm -hmm. right? Um, there are things that I'm learning now in college about slavery, about a lot of my ancestors, that things that I didn't even know. Like I didn't know about Black Wall Street. They never taught me that in high school. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until college that I, you know, started reading books and started taking all these courses um, regarding like slavery and slave the slave trade. And that's when I started learning about my real history and especially books centered around like gender. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, they, they, they don't have the right to ban books like that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you I mean, I feel like I hear a lot 
from people who aren't young people, old people, (laughs) I guess is how you might say that, about how like your generation approaches gender differently and thinks about sexuality differently. Do you feel like that's because there's more information and like writing about it or, or where do you think that comes from? I think, first of all, I I love my generation. We have our I bad parts to us. <laughs> we have our bad parts to us, but holistically, you know, we've we've we're, we continue to redefine gender, so it's more inclusive. Mm. And I really appreciate that. I come from a culture and a background where it's men and women. You know, like it's like one way. It's right. like one straight line. There's no gray area, no in between. And it was through reading books the media, interacting with young people my age um, who are part of the LGBTQ community that I was able to, you know, understand that, you know, things are a little bit more complex than I used to. Like even me um, finding out my my identity, like trying to figure out like, okay, what is my sexual orientation? Like mm. who, who am I, you know? And, and I wouldn't have learned about things like that, wouldn't have been more open-minded to things like that if it hadn't been for books. So when we start to remove the books from schools, like you went to public school, I don't know how reliant or how much access you had to your public or to your school libraries, but what do you feel like the young people lose with losing access to these books? Like, what do you feel like would have changed for you if you couldn't have access to them? So here's how I think about school, right? We, we put young people in school, we teach them Edu- like just their whatever the real history, real education, and then we allow young people to grow up and make and formulate their own opinions and their own ideas. Mm. That's how leaders are created. Yes. By banning these books, you're you're taking away from another perspective, and you don't know what that perspective could have done for a child. And I feel like right now they're doing this out of fear. Honestly, yes. I think it's like a fear of like more growth honestly yeah. and 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 you know like I, I said before I didn't learn a lot of things in my public school I literally I'm in college now and I'm like wait <laughs> Martin Luther King Rosa Parks these are the people that I hear you don't hear about Bear Rustin that much mm-hmm. in high school you know like the, it's like the hidden figures like that's why books are so important right yeah. they're so they, they give you more of what you're missing basically right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, let me just give you a warning about life as an older person. You're going to keep learning about these hidden figures and you're just going to keep getting more and more mad. It's devastating how much we don't learn about our our cultures and our and our communities and the people who really make America what it is and, and who've changed mm-hmm. world history. Like I had that same feeling. I went to private high school and a predominantly white school and I did not learn anything until after, I mean, frankly, after college, when I started doing my own reading and I still every day, I'm like, oh, I've never heard of that person who apparently, you know, created the world. Wow. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. It's not taught in schools anyways. I think that's also part of what's frustrating is like banning books from the libraries. It's not even that you're banning it being taught in the class, you're banning a child from having access to it at any point, like from discovering the thing. What do you feel like? I mean, I know when you did the show, you got on stage and you sort of debated the whether or not, depending on like which coin flip, I can't remember exactly how you guys decided, but whether or not the constitution should or should not be overhauled. Do you Mm -hmm. feel personally one way or another about that question? Um, I do. And sometimes I surprise myself um, (laughs) because, (laughs) no, because I'll be like, keep the constitution. And then when I really think about it as a a black woman, Mm -hmm. right. And an immigrant, even this document for, for a very long time, right. Didn't protect me. Um, And I'm still fighting for protection from, from this document till today. So the thought of being like, wait, why do I want to keep it then? It stays, you know, it, it it stays in my mind. But I will say this. I am afraid. I'm doing, I'm sorry. I will admit this to you. I know many people are going to hear this. Um, but I am afraid of 
the people who will be like in charge of creating this new document. Yes. I am afraid. Yes. I definitely believe that we've made progress, right? In some some areas, but I'm not, I don't think we're at the point where I'm where I can be like, okay, I can go to sleep and trust the people in charge to create a new document that, you know, include the the, the word woman, women, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, like is more inclusive for all genders. And so, yeah, I, I'm mostly, I'm, I'm always, except for when really crazy stuff happens, then I'm just like, just burn it all down. <laughs> Let stuff <laughs> crash. <laughs> but That's right, That's but right, right now I'm like, no, I am afraid. Like who, who knows how far back this one step of abolishing the constitution will get us, like, you know, right. getting rid of the constitution. Right. Yeah. Do you feel like, as far as the First Amendment goes, since I feel like that's sort of the crux of what's going on with the book banning stuff. Do you feel like the First Amendment is good protection? Do you feel like it really protects people or do you feel like it too has like its issues and should be reworked? I think just like all of the amendments, um, the exceptions, um, the interpretations, that's where the issue comes in. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court, some of their decisions, like, for example, like I said before, this the yelling, you know, like fire in a crowded movie. Of course, like mm-hmm. that's a safety habit, right? right? When it comes to certain ex- exceptions, the ones where I can be like, okay, I understand because of like public safety, I feel like it works. When it comes to censorship, though, with banning books, books that include a more complex discussion about gender and about race and about you know just that whole idea of intersectionality Mm -hmm. that's where I'm like hold on you know like some of the other amendments where I'm like okay wait no there's an there's there's an issue here and I normally find that with like the it's mostly at the interpretation level yeah I know you have aspirations to be a lawyer do you have aspirations to be a judge like do you want to be on the supreme court so I'm not sure. I, I know right now that I want to be a lawyer. And I feel like after I, well, maybe. Because here's how I was thinking about it. Okay. So first I wanted to change people's lives, like individually, mm-hmm. as a lawyer, case by case. Of course, that's going to take, <laughs> that's going to take years. Um, but then eventually I wanted to, I want to, and I will create the, the foundation for change laws mm. that makes, you know, the necessary change. And now that I think about it, the Supreme court plays a substantial role in that. Yes. Um, because I was thinking politician, I was thinking I, I'll run for office and, you know, just start introducing all these bills and laws. And, but now that I think about it, Supreme court is not a bad that's I think it's a good track yeah yeah I mean if you can get it heck yeah (laughs) I listen if I become president I will no questions asked nominate you to the Supreme Court how about that it's a deal I'm not running for office ever but if it happens if I somehow get elected (laughs) crazier things have happened um I'm wondering I don't know if this is something Ban- the banning of books is something that you're talking about with your friends. Is it something that's coming up? Are people on campus, do they seem interested? Do they seem upset? Do they seem engaged with this issue? Not necessarily. Okay. It is a conversation that I do have with my friends. Many of my friends are a part of the LGBTQIA community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it gets a little bit like, gets intense sometimes, you know, especially when they're still trying to figure out their identity and they're like, you know, like, why are books being banned that that talks about me or my community or my people, books that represent me? So in terms of that, with my close friends, we've had conversations. And honestly, so I, I love reading. Last summer, so during the school year, I don't get to read recreationally. I don't get any recreation time. Right, I'm like, right, right. I, had, I had one class on Tuesday and I have to have Angela Davis, Our Prison's Obsolete book read by the next class right um i've read it before really great read um so i don't mind reading and uh, reading it again so what i normally do is over the summer i would pick a book and i'll do like a summer reading two books i try to aim for two books mm-hmm. last summer i read just mercy and mm-hmm. i could not get to the second book because that book took so incredible so much yeah 
it took so much about me, but it was, it was, it, it was that book that like gave me the push that I needed at that time, um, uh, that I need, you know, mm-hmm. um, learning about the things that my people went through and it's, it was the raw, honest truth. There were times I'm, I'm on the train and I'm reading and I just start weeping, mm. you know, like I, I just start and and that's why books are so like I, I the thought of batting them just it don't yeah <laughs> they're so important um so yeah so no I w- in terms of the the bigger Trinity community I don't think that's their main concern right now we are dealing with a lot of like other issues on this campus but the conversations with my close friends and they know how much like I love to read. Mm. So for me, it's like, are we, like, are we serious now? And then the other part about it is I have two younger brothers. One of them is, is about to be four. The other one is about to be two. Okay. And they're going to grow up in this world. They need to learn mm-hmm. about their real history, mm-hmm. you know, and the thought of them not having access to certain books or not learning it, it it it's as if we're trying to like there's it, they're going up one sided, yeah, ignorant even, you know. Yeah, no, I have two small children, so I think about that a lot too. I'm like, what are they gonna? What's gonna be in their library? Nothing. Just gonna be copies of The Great Gatsby or something. Like, give me a break. Right. Um, okay, well, I feel like I feel like I only have one more question for you, which is, what is your favorite banned book or book that has been banned? Okay, wait, can I say two? <laughs> Go ahead. You can say whatever you want. It's a podcast. Um, I'll say The Hate You Give. Okay. Wait, I'm going to say three. Okay. I'm sorry. No, I, I, you, I listen, you get to do whatever you want. You're about to be on the Supreme Court. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> um, I will definitely say The Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid's Tale, that was a, just like Just Mercy. That one That one had me um, uh, yeah. in tears. And 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 the, the show, too. The show was a lot. Mm-hmm. and To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, Thursday, this was so great. Thank you so much for your time. I know that you are a such a busy college kid doing your thing, changing the world, and I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to talk with us today a little bit about, about BAM Books. Thank you so much, so, so much for having me. Of course. Um, and I'm happy that I can contribute in any way to this discussion um, this is ridiculous. I will continue to say that. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So thank you so, so much. Thank you for this platform. Thank you for, you know, engaging in these conversations on and on about, you know, these very important issues that are going to be affecting generations and generations to come. Yeah. Thank you so much. Everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to today's guests for joining me. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts and join The Stacks Pack on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Stacks. Remember that The Stacks Book Club pick for February is I Live a Life Like Yours by Jan Gru and we will be discussing the book on the podcast on Wednesday, February 23rd with Tessa Miller. I want to say a huge, huge thank you to Kiese Lehman, Sam Pinkleton, Andrew Russell, Cree Miles, Joseph Papa, Taryn Roeder, and Jackson Musker for helping me make this week possible. I also want to say an even bigger thank you to our editor, Christian Duenas, for working quadruple time to make this week possible. Everything you heard in today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.